You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. So he asked me if I would fill in. We discussed what to do with uh, Sunday school this morning. Had a couple of options. We could have played a video. I have a stack of a stack of videos that I want to show you guys. I can't wait to, but sometime in the future. Um, so after discussing what to do, he said, "You haven't done a Q&A for a long time, and there are likely going to be questions from what we have covered in John 6 and the context that people will have questions about. Some of the doctrines that we've covered in John 6." So I thought that would be as good of a chance as any to answer some of those questions. So we will do a Q&A. We open in prayer and uh, be thinking in your mind of issues maybe that you've, we've come across in John 6 that you want clarification on. And uh, that doesn't have to be the limits of it. It can be any other question that you have concerning ministry, Christian living, the Bible. If I can answer it, I will try. If I don't know the answer, I'll just tell you I don't know the answer. All right, let's open in prayer and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for this morning and for the blessings of your grace and kindness to us and the, the blessing of being able to be here in freedom to worship you and to uh, fellowship with each other. We thank you for the fellowship that we have in Christ purchased for us and made ours by his sacrifice. And we thank you for that. We ask that you would be with our time here and be with Jess as he is recovering from the illness. We pray that it would not get any more severe that you would continue to uphold him and strengthen him and uh, Lanny and John Ambrose and others in our body and our church family that are struggling and ill and suffering and under affliction. May your grace sustain them and may you teach them much about yourself and about your kindness and grace to them. Comfort them, we pray, and glorify your name and make for them eternal good out of all that they endure. We thank you that we can entrust ourselves to you and our time to you. We pray your blessing upon this, that you would be our teacher. Give us clarity of thought as we discuss things, and we pray that our time here would be profitable to the end of equipping and edifying your people. In Christ's name, amen. All right. So a Q&A. Are there no questions from John 6? Let's open it up. Oh, Jess, Jess did say there is a limit to the questions that you can ask, and one of the questions that you can't ask has to do with the imprecatory psalms and the curses that they talked about last week, because Jess is ready to answer those and he doesn't want me stealing his thunder, so I'm not going to. So you can ask any other question except anything happen to do with the imprecatory psalms. Because we're going to talk about imprecations. Imprecations? Imprecatoriations. We're going to talk about imprecatory psalms next Sunday. And I'm going to help Jess with that. So not, not that for today. Anything else? No questions from John 6? Oh, if I would given you a warning, you may have found something. Okay, five minutes. Any other questions? Lanny usually keeps a list of them in the back of his Bible for just such an occasion as this. Dorothy. Yeah, Dorothy's comment is in going through John 6, it's, it's been a blessing or a benefit to be able to see the attitude of the people to whom Jesus was speaking. And that, I think, is the key to understanding what's going on in John 6, that there are these two groups of people. There are the unbelieving crowd, and there is the disciples. And the unbelieving crowd and the disciples are all together, but the unbelieving crowd, in spite of all the signs and what they see, remains unbelieving, and there is a reason for that. And understanding the people to whom Jesus is speaking helps you see what he's doing in John 6 is explaining the reason behind their unbelief. Why do they remain in unbelief? 
Why do some believe and some don't? That's the, that's the issue of John 6. And once you understand the context of who he's talking to and you see their attitude and their heart, and that's why we took all the time to go through that whole build up to John 6, the miracles and their response to the miracles and their demand for signs and the purpose of signs and all of that. It was to show the heart condition of those to whom Jesus was speaking. Yeah. Carol? Right. Carol's observation, the people in John 6 actually saw the miracles that Jesus was doing, and yet they remained in unbelief. Today, we don't see the same thing. By the way, there is a whole movement within Christianity that says, if you really want to evangelize people and get unbelievers to believe, what you need to do is perform signs and wonders in their mix. So we should have healings and see gold dust falling out of the sky and people's teeth and fillings turning to gold. And we should be raising people from the dead because if the church got back to the signs and wonders of Jesus and the apostles, we would have many more people believing. Is that true? No, Jesus said to them, you have seen me and you do not believe. There is no sign on the face of the earth that can convince a hardened, unbelieving heart that loves darkness. You see it in Lazarus, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. They didn't deny that a miracle had been done. They just said, we have to kill him before he does more miracles. Because the whole nation's going to believe on him if we keep this up. We have to, we have to plot his death and kill him or the whole nation will believe and we will lose our power. Those were people who saw, they knew Lazarus had died, they saw him raised, and they remained in unbelief. They never denied, none of Jesus' critics ever denied that he did a legitimate miracle. You read through all the Gospels, you will never find anybody denying that he did a miracle. They will explain how he did the miracles. You do it by the power of Beelzebub. But they never denied that he actually did them. The same thing in the book of Acts. Remember the book of Acts, chapter 4, Peter and John healed a man at the beautiful gate in the temple. And then the guy got up and was leaping and praising God, and the people, the authorities brought him in and said... What are you doing? You can't do this. And and they knew, those people knew that the apostles had done a legitimate miracle. They never questioned the legitimacy of the miracle or the fact that a, a real miracle had taken place. They never argued against that. They just told them, you need to stop it. You need to stop preaching in this man's name and you need to stop doing what you're doing. So there's just, there's no, you could fill this room with unbelievers and I could stand up here and turn water into blood and then blood back into water and it could do, I could raise the dead, I could heal the sick, I could do any of those things. And that... No. That's, see, that's a clip. That's a clip right there that's going to be edited. It's going to be somebody's ringtone by the end of the week. I could do all of those things, hypothetically speaking, and none of them would be able to convince a room full of unbelievers to turn from darkness to light. None, none of those signs would do that. Because, as we're going to see today, apart from the drawing of God, apart from the work of God through those things, those things will not convince. No, no preaching in the world, no sermon, no event, no gimmick, no program, no platform. No speaker. None of those things can create genuine saving faith. That's a work of God. Mark? Oh, right. Yeah, good point. Yeah, Mark's point was if I did do those miracles, their nature would be to fall down and worship me and not God. But the irony is, though, that they didn't fall down and worship Jesus when he did those, did they? No, because he was the true God. And do they want the true God? No, the unbeliever doesn't want the true God. That's why, well, they will turn from him. Uh, no, because the apostles could do those miracles. The apostles did miracles, so did Moses and Elijah and Elisha, and they weren't worthy of worship. What made Jesus worthy of worship was what the, what the miracles authenticated of him. See, he made claims that Paul never made. So Paul could have done similar miracles. Uh, uh, Paul raised uh, the boy from the dead that fell out of the window after the 12-hour sermon. He raised the boy from the dead who did that. Jesus raised somebody from the dead. Why is Jesus worthy of worship and Paul is not worthy of worship? It's because of the claims that Jesus made. The miracles of Jesus authenticated what Jesus said about himself. The miracles of Paul authenticated what Paul said about Jesus. See, Jesus pointed to himself and said, I am worthy of worship, and I'm able to make these claims, and I'm going to demonstrate to you that I am God. 
He did those miracles. The miracles of the apostles didn't point to themselves. The miracles of the apostles pointed to Jesus again. They said, He is God, and He has given us this power to do this, therefore worship Him. That make sense? Yes, Lynn. Right. Yeah, the point of the miracles, the miracles really had, I think, a primary, a primary objective. The miracles of Jesus had a primary objective, and that was to authenticate His claims, to demonstrate that He is who He said He is. You see that in John 5? The works that I do testify of me, right? And the Father testifies of me, and the Scriptures testify of me, and Moses testifies of me, and the works that I do bear witness of me that I am who I am. So that was one of the primary, uh, the primary purposes of the miracle. A secondary purpose of the miracles was to show that miracles cannot create genuine saving faith. You see it all the way through the Gospels. And there was a time when Jesus was, I don't even know if it's appropriate to say that he was riding a wave of popularity, but he was very popular for a period of time. But after all of the miracles, and even after the miracle of the resurrection in Acts chapter 1, how many people are following him? A couple hundred people, the most. You see, and his, his observation, Mark's observation was that in the Gospel of John, when Jesus mentions the Jews, he refers to the Jews, the majority of the time, and, and I can't think of a single instance where this is not the case off the top of my head, he's speaking of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, those who were the religious establishment. And that's absolutely true, and he points to the hardness of their unbelieving heart. But it would be wrong to conclude from that 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 only applies to them. Because the things that made them unbelieving and loving darkness are also true of all of humanity. And so though it is true of this crowd and of the Jews that they loved darkness, which they did, it's not fair to say only they love darkness or that the no man can come to me only applies to this certain group of people known as the Jews. Because when, when Jesus paints this, uh, paints humanity with the brush of incapacity and inability, he's painting with a broad brush and it's applying to all men. Now it was true of Pharisees, but their condemnation was more severe because they had more light. So they should have known the Scriptures. And that's at the end of John 5, verses 39 and 40, where he says, um, have you not read or you should know the Scriptures? Yeah, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it's these that testify about me, John 5, 39 and 40, and you're unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Their condemnation is is just, and it's more severe because of the amount of light that they rejected, those unbelieving Jews. Right. That's one thing that makes the book of John a little bit more, a little bit different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That's one of the different elements is that most of the confrontations in the Gospel of John are not between Jesus and your run-of-the-mill Jew. They're between Jesus and the establishment, which is, you trace that all the way through the Gospel of John. He came into his own and his own received him not. And why is that, why is it that they didn't receive him? It's because, and that then there are things in John which paint all of humanity. All men love darkness. This is the condemnation. The light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light. Not Jewish not religious Jewish Pharisees love darkness rather than light. It's this thing. These things are true of all of humanity, but it's intensified with the Pharisees because they should have known better. They had the scriptures. Yeah, good, good observation. Any other? Bonnie. Okay. Okay, that's a huge question. Romans 14 talks about things which seem to be sin for one person and not another. So how do we deal with that? How do we handle sin? How do we confront or deal with somebody when we see something in their life that we think is sin but they don't think is sin? Um, let me give you my take on... Let me turn over there real quick first. Romans 14. Uh, let's read it for real quick. Romans 14. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. 
The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. So you can see here that he's already giving an illustration or example of this type of being led by conscience. One of them is the person who eats meat and the person who only eats vegetables. Uh, the one who eats meat is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is, to ju- is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Verse 4, who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For he will, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another any more, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. By the way, just stop there for a minute at the end of verse 14 while I'm thinking about it. Does verse 14, nothing is unclean of itself, apply to everything? Is fornication unclean? Is prostitution unclean? Is idol worship unclean? Okay, so there are things which are unclean in and of themselves, which are prohibited. But that's not what Paul's describing. In Romans 14, he's describing things which are neither forbidden nor commanded. These are what we what we would call adiaphron or gray areas, things neither forbidden nor commanded. Um, um, uh, Luther had a term for it, middle... Uh, uh, it was German, I'm not going to be able to get it. Verse 15, For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who is, he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before the Lord. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Okay, so the, the main illustration in Romans 14 dealing with conscience is what somebody eats. Okay, so you would have had people who had sacrificed meat offered to idols. They sold that meat in the marketplace. And there were Christians then who bought that meat. And some people, some Christians, had a clean conscience in buying meat in the marketplace that was sacrificed to idols. They didn't care where the meat came from or what happened to the meat before it was sold to them. They just saw the meat and thought, we can barbecue this. This looks good. We can have somebody over. So then they would buy the meat. But then another Christian would say, but that meat was sacrificed to idols. And it might violate that second Christian's conscience to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols or to maybe to eat meat at all because he's a vegetarian. And so what Paul is saying is there are certain things and there's no... He doesn't say, don't eat meat, and he doesn't say, don't not eat meat. What does he say in Romans 14? He who eats does it to the Lord. He who does not eat does that to the Lord as well. So in areas or issues where Christians can differ, it's not a this is sin issue. We have the freedom to partake or to not partake of those things. I don't have the freedom to partake of prostitutes because that is clearly sin. Do I have the freedom to partake of, to eat, Armadillo meat. 
I do. How about pork? I can eat pork, thankfully. Everything's better with bacon. If you don't like bacon, you're wrong. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so let me get to that. Okay. So uh, there's two issues with the stumbling block. Let's get to that in just a second. What about the use of alcohol for Christians? I am not of the opinion that the use of alcohol itself is sinful. I don't believe that. I believe the Christians have the freedom, if they choose to, to have a beer or a cup of wine. I don't believe that the, the consumption of alcohol per se is sin. I believe it can be sin. If it violates my conscience, it is a sin because going against my conscience is always wrong. It is never okay to violate my conscience. If my conscience says it is wrong for me to step on black lines in a gymnasium, and that really bears upon my conscience, stepping on that black line for me is a sin because it violates my conscience. And if I can't do it in a clean conscience, I ought not to do it, no matter how benign it is morally. So with the issue of alcohol, if a Christian can partake of alcohol with a clean conscience, it doesn't bother him. And we're not talking about drunkenness. Drunkenness is a sin. That's not allowed. You cannot be drunk with wine. Is it okay for a Christian to consume alcohol? I believe it is in moderation. I believe he has the freedom to do that if it does not violate his conscience or her conscience. Now, if the say as a Christian, I believe that it is a, a horrible thing to partake of alcohol. And I can't do it because I come out of an alcoholic family and my dad was an alcoholic and my uncles are alcoholics. My grandfather died with a horrible liver. So I think it's a horrible thing. And I hate alcohol. I hate the taste of it. I hate the smell of it. I hate the sight of it. I can't stand watching the funny beer commercials in the Super Bowl. I'd absolutely repulsed by alcohol. But I go over to Thomas's house and Thomas, Thomas has a, a bottle of wine on his counter. Am I free then to confront Thomas because he is in sin? No. I'm not. I, I can't impose my, I can't impose my view on alcohol on Thomas in good faith. I can't do that. It's not a violation of his conscience. He doesn't have a problem with it. He never gets drunk. And he can have a cup of wine without ever getting drunk. And if he can do that, that's in his conscience. Okay, now let's say that I enjoy alcohol and I imbibe in alcohol and I can drink alcohol and I have the freedom to do so. Now I go over to, I have Lanny over to my house and Lanny comes from an alcoholic background where he got drunk a lot and it's a real stumbling block for him. And Lanny can't, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I'm just using you as an example because <laughs> you're on the other side of the, the sanctuary. So Lanny cannot partake in good conscience. Right? And he hates alcohol. He doesn't want anything to do with it because it would violate his conscience. And, and he's repulsed by it. He doesn't want anything to do with it whatsoever. Now, if Lanny and I are having a conversation, I say, oh, I, I can appreciate that, Lanny. I understand your background and what you came from. And But me, on the other hand, I, I do partake of a beer now and then or a, a cup of wine or a wine cooler. And I don't get drunk. And, and I don't have a problem with that. My conscience doesn't violate my conscience to do so. Is my use of that or my partaking of that necessarily a stumbling block to Lanny? It could possibly be, but not necessarily. Not necessarily. What is a stumbling block? Is a stumbling block somebody partaking of something while other people don't have the conscience to partake of that? Or is a stumbling block me causing him to stumble by partaking of that? Now, if I have Lanny over to my place and we sit down at a meal, and I know that this is Lanny's thing, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to correct his conscience. I'm going to straighten this boy out. We're going to sit down at a table, and I'm going to put the wine cooler out there and the glass of wine, and I'm going to badger Lanny to the point where he finally takes a drink of alcohol. Or I know it's a temptation to him, and so I'm going to put that temptation out there in front of him so that he will partake of it and see that he can do that as a Christian. And then he does it, violates his conscience. That is a stumbling block. Do you understand? What's that? 
No, that's the point. That would be putting a stumbling block or a temptation into Lanny's path. Now, his knowledge that I partake of alcohol is not a stumbling block in and of itself. Right? Because that I, I can't make him. That's not putting a temptation in front of him. So Paul's use of meat in Romans 14, it's a stumbling block. Look, did Paul eat meat? He did, right? We know he ate meat. So for every Christian in the Mediterranean world who didn't want to eat meat, is Paul going to not eat meat ever again just so that he wouldn't possibly cause somebody somewhere that he might run into someday to stumble? No, because you have to be, the other side of that, to be, to be careful with the freedom issue as a Christian, I need to understand that I have certain freedoms and I can use them within moderation, I can use them appropriately, but I ought not to do it in such a way that puts a temptation in somebody's path or causes somebody to go ahead and do the same thing I'm doing and thus sin. Because if I'm putting something in their path that makes them violate their conscience, that is sin. That's the, that's the last verse of verse 14, or chapter 14. He who doubts is condemned if he eats. Right? The food. The guy who has the conscience says, don't eat the food offered to idols. Is eating food offered to idols itself a sin? It's not. That's the point. Some people, it would violate their conscience. So he who eats or doubts is condemned if he eats because it violates his conscience. Not because eating meat itself is sinful. It's because he violated his conscience. That's what is sinful. It's not the eating of meat itself. Eating of meat itself is benign. But if he eats it, and it causes his conscience to stumble, and he feels guilty, and he knows he shouldn't have done that, he knows he wasn't strong enough to do that, and it bothers him that he shouldn't eat it. Because to eat it, though it's not sinful to eat meat, to eat it under those circumstances is sinful, because Verse of verse says his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. He can't do it with a clean conscience. He can't do it as an act of worship and obedience, as unto the Lord, giving thanks. And so to do it, even though it's morally benign, is for him a sin, because it violates his conscience, and he can't do it in thankfulness and gratitude to God. Does that make sense? Okay, so hold on. Uh, yeah, I think that that's a key. I gave you the illustration of maliciously trying to be a stumbling block by providing a situation in which Lanny could drink. Okay, so that would be a malicious intent. Um, I think as Christians, if we partake of something that we have the freedom to partake of, I, I don't think that it is wise to publish your liberty and the expressions of your liberty all over the world. Right? So there's a whole movement in Christianity today called the Young Restlessen Reform. MacArthur got into some hot water in the blogosphere because he sort of gave some, I think, wise advice to the Young Restlessen Reform crowd. There's a whole segment of Christianity now that the mark of their spirituality is their imbibing in alcohol and the freedom to use this. So they have Bible studies and pubs and breweries and all this stuff, and it is the flaunting of liberty. And that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not saying you have the, re- you have the responsibility or the freedom to flaunt your liberty. I don't think you do. I don't think liberty should be flaunted. I think it should be enjoyed, and it's something that we have to sort of walk this fine line between, okay, how do I enjoy my liberty? I don't want to be held enslaved by a yoke of bondage. I want to enjoy my freedom in Christ. But at the same time, I don't want to flaunt my liberty in such a way that this is a stumbling block or causes people to sin. And so I think you've got to figure out how you walk a fine line there. You don't bring wine to the church potluck. Okay, so, yeah, you don't flaunt your liberty by doing that. You don't have the youth group over and put out all the wine coolers and leave your empty beer cans sitting all over the house. That would be flaunting your liberty. And I don't think you should do that. So you need to walk in such a way that's wise, that gives consideration to other people's conscience. But it doesn't mean that we live under the tyranny of the professional weaker brother. Do you know who the professional weaker brother is? He's the person who's constantly looking at anything you do that doesn't match his legalistic standards and saying, hey, that, that violates my conscience. I can never do that, so you should not do that either. Because I'm the weaker brother. 
And since I'm the weaker brother, you need to limit your expressions of your liberty and you're sinning against me by doing this. Okay, so being the weaker brother is not a virtue. By the way, that's something to keep in mind. Being weak in your conscience, weak in your faith, and weak in your understanding is not a virtue. So somebody says, hey, I'm the weaker brother, then you got a problem. The person with their hand raised, you need to take them aside and say, okay, brother, let's strengthen you then. Right? If you are confessing to be weak in this area, then you need to be educated, you need to be strengthened, you need to learn how to walk in this path. You, you can't... Right. The weaker brother needs to mature. That's the, that's the point. There are professional weaker brothers that anytime you hear a song with any kind of a beat, you're offended. I'm offended. Every time I walk by a lingerie store, I'm offended. And there's people who are always looking for an offense and a reason to have their conscience violated, and I'm offended at this, I'm offended at that, I'm offended at a thousand things, and everybody needs to match my standards, and everybody needs to act just like me, or I'm going to be offended. And to, to that I would just say, you need to grow up and stop being offended. I mean, the more, the more I mature in Christ the more I find that the things that offend me are not the things that other people do in expressions of their liberty. The things which offend me are the things that people do against the name and the glory of God. That offends me. When somebody blasphemes his name, that offends me. When somebody says something bad about God, when a false teacher says something that's untrue about Jesus or salvation, those things offend me and they offend me deeply. They vex me and I'm offended at those. Whether you imbibe or alcohol or not, whether you listen to 80s music or not, is irrelevant to me. I don't care. None of those things offend me. I can walk past a lingerie store and bounce my eyes and guard my eyes. I don't need to go in. I don't need to write letters to ABC, NBC, CBS about all this stuff. Let pagans be pagans. But when uh, somebody, a Christian or a non-Christian, assaults God, that offends me. And I think as you grow in faith, your conscience should be educated to the point where you come to a point of saying, you know what, there's a lot fewer hills that I'm willing to die on. And I will die on those, but all of the other things, I'm just, I'm not interested in those. I gotta pick my battles and pick them well. Brian. It's, there is, there is this, as Christians, we need to understand there are a lot of things that we do that can be offensive to somebody. And we need to be sensitive to that. And if we think that we're doing something that we have liberty to do, it's an audio offering, it's neither commanded nor forbidden, then we need to partake of that liberty. I think quietly and in a way that we're not going to be consciously throwing a stumbling block into somebody's way. That seems to me a, a wise course. Um, I, I should never purposefully or even on accident cause my brother to stumble or to sin or to do something that would violate his conscience, even though I might have the freedom to do that. And so we need to be sensitive, but at the same time, and this is a balancing act, and there's no hard and fast rules on either side, we need to be sensitive to those who might be weaker in the faith, and we need to come along and build them up in the faith, but at the same time, we also need to be sensitive that we're not, we're not falling under people's legalistic demands in an attempt of living under the tyranny of the professional weaker brother who just needs to grow up in their faith. So, that's, Romans, that's my take on Romans 14. Yeah, yeah, all things are profitable, but not all things are, are, are edify, I think is the word that he used. We have, we have liberty to do a lot of stuff, but not all of it's profitable. I, look, do I have the freedom to eat ice cream every night? Yeah, Lanny and I do have the freedom. Lanny partakes of the freedom every night he eats ice cream, right? But eating ice cream might be horribly offensive to Vince. It's not? Okay, well, bad example. Okay, so it, b- both of us have the freedom. What's that? It's not profitable to your arteries or your body or maybe your Christian testimony. Um, there are things that uh, that we have the freedom to do. People with wealth have a lot of more opportunities and freedoms to do things 
that might um, that might not be profitable for them to do, even though they have the freedom to do them. Right? So there are things that we do. Sometimes it's profitable for me to say no to something, to say no to a dessert. Now maybe you look at me and say, it doesn't look like you say no to many desserts. And that might be the case, but sometimes it's profitable for me to just say no. I have the liberty to do this, but I'm not going to do it on this occasion. And there are all kinds of reasons to do that. Right? I don't think smoking per se is a sin. I think it can be. I think it's foolish. It's going to kill you. I mean, I've seen enough people die from lung cancer. I think, why in the world would you ever put another one of those things in your mouth? I think it's a foolish thing. Is it sin per se? No, it's not sin per se. Yeah, it's foolish. It stinks. Cigars, pipes, some of them smell good, some of them don't. It's not necessarily a sinful thing, but it's just not necessarily a wise thing. There are better things to do with my money, with my time. Carol. Oh, Carol first. Is this, who has to do with, does this change the subject? Okay, go ahead. Because yeah. you can do illegal stuff all the time. This is not a so sin. Is, so is heroin. <laughs> <laughs> I never did understand that, but you can't you, extreme on that. Right. Um, okay, hold, hold on, hold on. We're confusing. Okay, we're confusing categories. I understand what you're saying. You can take it to an extreme, but let's let's go back to comparing the. This is coming up because we're confusing two categories. Let's go back to comparing apples to apples, and, and here's the apples to apples comparison. If it were possible for me to drink a teaspoonful of alcohol that would radically affect and impair my judgment and my body and make me drunk, would that be morally wrong? Because drunkenness is wrong, right? So that's the difference between having a cup of wine and taking a syringe full of heroin. Okay? There's no ability to partake of some things without it becoming sin immediately. That's the difference. With alcohol, that is possible. So that's where the gray area. Pot is not a gray area. Heroin, crack, and speed, these are not gray areas because they they immediately take you from a state of self-control, which is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, to a state where you are not under control and you are you are incapacitated because of your intoxication. Alcohol is not that way. You can drink enough Vicks, vapor, uh, Vicks not vapor rub, you don't want to drink that. You can drink enough Vicks cough syrup to intoxicate you and to um, make you incapacitated. In which case... Drinking Vicks that much is sinful, right? Or you could do the same thing with a shot of heroin. It's instantly sinful. So that's the that's the category confusion that is that's how you can't take that from A to B with that line of reasoning. Okay, hold on. We had one over here, Jenny. Okay, so say you have say you have somebody that you know is involved in something that you know is a sin. It's not a question of adiaphron. It's not a Romans 14 issue. And they claim to be a believer. Like say somebody's living in sin or dating an unbeliever or involved in doing something, regular drunkenness or something like that. Watching porn or involved in this. They claim to be a believer. Then I think we have a responsibility, if we love that individual, to come alongside and say, look, brother, sister, we need to work through this issue because this is a clear violation of Scripture. Maybe you, and, and I would approach them, maybe you didn't know that this was a clear violation of Scripture. Maybe you're ignorant. So... You approach them that way and you try and teach them. And if they reject truth and reject truth and reject truth and reject truth, then they're demonstrating that they're not a believer, in which case they need the gospel, not restoration. So sometimes a person just needs to be come alongside of and have somebody walk them through an issue through discipleship. Does that make sense? So then it becomes a Galatians 6, right? You, you who are spiritually restored, such a one in a spirit of gentleness, coming alongside your brother. And, and, and it's not a church discipline issue yet, but you are trying to restore, you're trying to walk them through that process. Now, there may come a point where it becomes a church discipline issue because though while they're claiming to be a believer, they're living in persistent sin in the knowledge of truth. 
And then it becomes a church discipline issue. Then you, then it's Matthew 18. And it goes from Galatians 6 into Matthew 18. Well, yeah, Jenny says sometimes she feels like she doesn't have the right to say something because of the old log in her eye. I mean, look, if I'm living in fornication, if I'm sleeping in an adulterous affair, and I go and confront somebody else who's living in adultery, that's the log in my eye. But if I have a, a problem with using my time wisely or not spending enough quiet time with the Lord or this is a sin issue that I'm really trying to deal with, that doesn't make me in, um, unqualified to go talk to my adulterous brother and confront them. So that's the log in the eye issue. It's the same, it's the same sin. That's why Paul in Galatians 6 says, um, you who are spiritual, restore such one in a spirit of gentleness. And the passage there says, fearing that you also might fall into the same temptation and the same sin. So you can't go to somebody else to confront them about sin X if you are living in sin X as well. So that's that's the issue. But it doesn't mean that just because I'm not perfect that I can't confront any of my brothers. I can, but then this comes back to Bonnie's question, and we'll get to you, um, Josie, or uh, Mrs. Sagansky. We'll get to you in just a second, and then um, somebody over here said you had a question. This gets back to Bonnie's the end of Bonnie's question, which was, what if I see somebody who's involved in what I think is a sin, but they don't think to be a sin? How do I deal with that? And I think that if, if you're the stronger, if you're the weaker brother, then you need to go to Romans 14 and say, okay, is this a sin issue or not? Is it a clear sin issue? If it's a clear sin issue, then they need, then we're back over in Jenny's court. Then I need to approach them, maybe thinking that they don't understand that it's a sin issue, and I need to teach them through it and walk with them in it. But if it's if I can't identify this is a, certainly a sin issue or not, then I think that I need to step back and say, okay, I'm the one whose conscience is violated, and now I need to just I need to be I need to grow up in this area, and recognize that we are not going to agree on this area. They have the freedom to do this, and I don't think they have the freedom to do this. And I'm not going to let this offend me. I'm going to allow them to stand and fall before their own master. They have to stand before the Lord and give an account for this. I'm going to let them do that, and I have to stand before the Lord and give an account for where I'm at. And I'm just going to leave it at that. But if you're walking around, you're just eating at you, eating at you. I need to confront this individual eating at you. And it's not a sin issue, but their liberty in this hurts you or harms you or offends you. Then I think that my counsel to that believer would be you need to grow up. You need to understand there are bigger fish to fry in this world than whether or not Lanny eats ice cream every night. Right? So if that offends you, you need to grow up because there are bigger, bigger things that we need to do. But if it's clearly a sin issue, then I think we have a responsibility to confront them with that sin issue. Does that help? Okay. Right, I'm glad you brought that up. If it's illegal, it's a sin. Period. Does a... What's that? Okay, perfect. Because does, does a 20-year-old Christian have the freedom in Christ to partake of alcohol? Why not? Because the law is 21. In another state where the law is 20, does a 20-year-old have a 20-year-old believer have the freedom to partake of alcohol? They do, not to the point of drunkenness, but they would have that freedom. So what makes it wrong in one situation is it's a violation of the law. And if it violates the law, whether the law is just in your opinion or not, to me is irrelevant. Right? That I just I don't I don't nitpick. I don't put myself up above the government and say, well, I think that's an unjust law. I'm just not going to I'm not going to abide by it. It doesn't matter whether it's an unjust law or not. I'm, I'm, to the best of my ability, I'm going to live under the governing authorities that God has given to me. And as long as they're not asking me to do an outright sin, I'm going to abide with what they ask me to do and work like a dog to change it, to change what they're asking me to do. Uh, Mark, right? Christ did things to the religious leaders to purposely offend them, right? Could he have? But it wasn't sin, and it wasn't sin because of who he was and because of what Scripture said and because he was not violating the law of God. He was violating their traditions, not the law of God. It was their traditions that they didn't, which they elevated to the status of a law in their keeping of it, right? But it wasn't a law. 
Right. They, they elevated their traditions to the level of a law, even though it wasn't technically a law, and Christ purposefully offended them for the purpose of demonstrating their commitment to man-made traditions over the Word of God. It was his way of confronting them with their worship of men and their straying from the law and the true plan of God. Okay, one last thing, and then we're, we're, we're done. That's 10.15, and their kids lining up, so... Um, Anything else real quick that we can deal with? Yes? Right. The difference, they're adding, they're adding to the laws of the land constantly like the Pharisees were, but the difference, again, category distinction, the difference with the Pharisees is that they're adding to the law of God was, um, kept people from fulfilling the true meaning of the law of God. Right? So if the government says you must wear your seatbelt, does that keep me from being an obedient Christian? No, I mean, it's a burden, yeah, sure it is, but but I, I'm under I'm under that authority, Romans 13. So as long as they're not asking me to purposefully, intentionally sin, and I believe I have a responsibility to obey the laws. What's that? Refusing to sign up for Medicare. Oh, see here now he has, he knows we got to leave. <laughs> Paying taxes, paying taxes that go to support abortion. What do you do with that? Yeah, because I think when Paul said that you should pay your taxes and Jesus said you should pay your taxes, they were living under a completely righteous government that didn't use any of their tax money for wicked purposes, did they? No, they didn't go to persecute Christians or kill babies or... No, it was a... Right. So, the, the use of that money by that party is irrelevant to whether or not I'm obligated to pay that money. I fulfill my obligation, and trust me, justice will be done for those who use my money to do something. Right. Now, now we got to stop. we got to stop. So I promised. I thought we wouldn't have anything to talk about. Let's pray real quick. God, we do thank you for the time that we've enjoyed and your word, which gives us clarity on these things. Help us to think in a way that honors you and glorifies you and to submit our hearts and minds to your truth. And help us to think of these things the way that you would want us to, so that we might live obedient and productive lives for the glory of Christ and his kingdom. In whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.